0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am.
1: Right On with Vander Simon, brought to you by the New Zealand Society of Authors and kindly sponsored by the great team at Otago University Press.
0: The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture perfect, just smell those books and breathe atmosphere. With its staff who entice me with, oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated, right at the front, so you trip over at New Zealand New Releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that fabulous team at the University Bookshop. Listen in as we get to spend the next hour delving into that wonderful world of books. Neville Pete is a Dunedin writer who's written around 40 books, um, non-fiction works covering a vast array of natural history and environment and conservation issues. And his latest book, Home as an Island, it's described as part memoir, part adventure travel, history and nature conservation. Neville, I'll say welcome back to the show.
1: Yes, thank you, Vanda.
0: (laughs) Now, I've kind of thought that this was going to be a memoir, but you've... Put other elements into it. So what prompted you to look at writing, it's kind of about yourself, but under that theme of islands? Yes.
1: It's a, a good question to start off with because um, essentially I wasn't aiming to write a memoir, but I was wanting to do something about telling stories about islands that have been part of my working life as a journalist and a mm-hmm. publicist and a, and, a, and a researcher, I think you could say. Uh, so um, I was trying to keep a low, sort of a low profile, but basically, <laughs> I ha- when I selected the eight, I had to tell readers how, how I got there first and by what sort of means, that kind of thing. And then, deep, d- then dig into the the essence of those islands. Um, they've often fascinated me, and you know, New Zealand is an archipelago. Even though most of us live on what we call the mainland, and it is a reasonably good size. Landmass, but we have you know something like over 600 islands that are within uh, 50 kilometres of our, sh- our mainland, and uh, more than a hectare. So um, you know we have a further 34, I think it is, that are beyond uh, the 50 kilometre li- limit, and they include places like Chatham Islands. Um, that's the actually the only one that's um, that's uh, inhabited. Mm. The rest of them are visited by various groups and are, you know like the sub islands or the subtropical Kermadec islands.
0: So it wasn't just like a, a cunning ploy on your part to de- deflect away from doing a memoir as such, it was more from that mm. island focus.
1: Yes, that's right, it is certainly a, sh- a very strong focus uh, because uh, as we might get to talk about uh, the islands, uh, these ones and throw up some examples of how resilient they can be and how they might le- teach us something in a time of pandemic or pandemics or, or other, you know, national emergencies.
0: Because it's, it's really interesting, you know, what you've described is the vast number of islands associated in that we have with New Zealand, whereas most of us probably only think in terms of, you know, we've got three big ones and a few small ones, but there is this vast amount. So what, you know, for New Zealand and in that context, what is the actual importance of these outlying islands?
1: Well, they, they contribute collectively, they contribute to an enormous economic, exclusive economic zone. And we have got about the fourth largest in the world, actually, as a result of the reach of these islands, like Chatham's, the Kermadecs, the sub-Antarctic islands, and even down into the Antarctic, of course. Um, And, yeah, we just... um, They're important in terms of of the economy because they offer fisheries. That's probably the first thing you think about it. And uh, they are... You know, they're very productive uh, waters because they range from, from cold to sort of uh, cool temperate through that and then into the warmth of, uh, of the Kermadex and, and the fisheries around there.
0: Because it makes you realise that New Zealand as a nation is so long and with our economic zones actually covers a vast amount of yes. area compared yes. to other countries.
1: That's right. And, you know, when Thomas Bracken wrote those lines in the, our national anthem, Guard Pacific, uh, Pacific's Triple Star, he was talking about, I have to think he was talking about the three main islands, and, including Stuart. But when you get to Stuart, they they kind of talk about the mainland or over the ditch or <laughs> over the, uh, um, you know, the other side sometimes. They use that term too, to define their separation from, from <laughs> us as a, as part of the mainland.
0: Well, they're not going to try and next themselves, are they?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Now, in the first section um, of the book, you know, you were talking about, it's on, set on Stewart Island, Rakiura, in 1969, and you were a, a young whippersnapper reporter uh, with um, The Evening Star. Now, looking back on that, you know, you've had a long career in writing. Um, yes. And... Coming into areas of conservation, was this how you envisaged your career or you set out as a as a young man?
1: Uh, probably not. I mean I was and uh, I was in raptures of uh, over the the, uh, the idea of being a journalist, a reporter, even a cub reporter on the Evening star, uh, w- which um, which welcomed me in straight out of high school, and um, I'm very grateful for that. And uh, and it was a size of city and a size of newspaper that allowed a, a young journalist who was keen to, to really develop, and so I quickly developed. So I had um, altogether 10 years, not all of them in Dunedin, but uh, half of them probably in Dunedin and elsewhere uh, working for newspapers. But I guess after 10 years of it, I thought, well, there are other things that I could be doing. And... Um, I kind of got away from that and went into my um, publicist era, I suppose you could call it, with uh, the New Zealand um, Antarctic Division of the DSIR that uh, gave me access to, um, to the Antarctic.
0: Because mm. one of the themes that sort of comes through in, in, you know, in your career and um, looking at the islands and what you've done is There always seems to be an underlying environmental conservation theme to your work. Was this always a planned focus or interest from you from the outset? Or did this come about because of your career path?
1: Yeah, not really. I mean, I I sort of warmed to it uh, probably slowly. But Antarctica certainly set me off because it's a place that has some unusual... A wildlife, of course, with, uh, with its marine mammal populations and its birds. And, um, and I had the good fortune to be um, offered a job to write the text for a book of paintings when I got back from my first summer in Antarctica, uh, which set me off into sort of researching a bit more about the, the natural history of that, that area and the geology of it too. I had a job down there which I considered to be the best on, at Scott Base, Mm. Uh, because it gave me access uh, to the fieldwork and to or a whole range of uh, earth and life sciences, uh, which uh, really set me off on a, on a path towards probably what what I've developed over the years, uh, con- as you say, uh, nature conservation.
0: Because what focus. was your job there? I mean, it's not often that a job comes up like that in Antarctica.
1: <laughs> no, it's not. Um, <laughs> And in fact, doesn't that, that job does not exist uh, these days, and mm. and uh, people from the arts community are often uh, are invited to go for a ten day spell, not a four month one. Mm. Um, but I had the you know the lucky break of having four months uh, and two summers down there consecutively, uh, and uh, I was uh, in a job which. You know, I had two Olympus cameras, uh, one with black and white film and one with colour. I had a pile of notebooks, and off I went. You know, to write stories for New Zealand media about the research going on there and uh, and the base, the life on the base, and everything was all kind of new to us. Where uh, everybody on the base and probably only a couple of them had ever been there before, so we're all kind of thrown together and into a, a community. And uh, it's not a place for loners. I can say, tell you that. You know, you need to be a to, bit cosy. <laughs> yeah, you you need to be kind of uh, uh, able to tolerate, I suppose, each other and and get on with each other in order to to have that social cohesion.
0: Because one of the remarkable things that comes through is, you know, some of the places you've ended up finding yourself that you. Career had brought you so. In this book, home is an island. Um, well, I'll, I'll, the list of islands that you do talk about throughout the book. So there's you no know, territory, Matangi which is the Horaki Gulf, Kapiti Island, um, Anchor Island, Fiordland, Stewart Island, um, the Chatham Islands, Ross um, Island, which is Antarctica. Um, Enderby Island and the Auckland Islands and um, Tokelau,
2: mm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> of all
0: places, because that you know is a New Zealand dependency. So mm. you know, when I first saw it there, I sort of oh, that, actually that reminded me that it was a New Zealand dependency. So no, which is a huge range of places that you've been. So what have been some of your um, highlight experiences?
1: Oh, well, let's start with um, Tokelau if you like, because <laughs> uh, that was another publicist job I was. I went from Scott Base um, to um, tro- the tropical, working in the tropics. Actually, <laughs> a bit uh, of a contrast uh, with the New Zealand Foreign Affairs uh, uh, Ministry. And my job, I had, I was by myself. The same in in, in in Scott Base too, had the job to myself to produce words and photographs. That that in, in the case of the of uh, of the Tukala, um area. Um, I I had to um, take off with the, with my equipment and write and and uh, write about the what was happening there. And Tokelau uh, is a, was funded the, from the New Zealand External Aid Division, and I was a publicist for it by myself, which um, was something of a challenge to me, but. Um, because all of the stories really were overseas they were in, in the south pacific and asia and africa and south america and um i um uh, yeah tokelau I, I had the good fortune to be able to get there two times in the time i was with ministry of foreign affairs of wellington and the first time with the ship that goes out of out of apia to this day it's going there now and, is, um, and the second time was a few months later with a seaplane that was testing the possibilities for a, um, for a service, an air service, out of Apia and Samoa up to Tokelau Islands, which are to the north, and spread out. The three of them are uh, all atolls, low-lying to the, to the sea, of course. And so uh, I had that uh, opportunity to fly over and see what, what the islands would look like and then, um, and then land. It was, it was a kind of a strange experience of, um, because some of the folk in the, in, the, in the villages on these atolls wouldn't have heard the plane land or land on the lagoon and then sort of roll up onto the beach. Uh, and there I was sort of walking around like someone had come from out of space, I suppose, <laughs> and, uh, and, and finding them right at home and doing their, their, just their normal things. Whereas if you go in the boat, uh, in, the, in the small coaster ship uh, that supplied the islands and, and, and uh, carried people to and from them, uh you you were greeted by most of the community um because they were they rolled around on a monthly basis basically and uh so the the community turned out and forced to greet you and so on but well, you arrive in this plane and uh, you're walking around just like you've dropped out of nowhere
0: got a few double takes i'm sure
1: yeah <laughs> yes, I did yeah, some nice uh photography as well you know i I loved carrying my cameras and in illustrating my own words.
0: And it was interesting, you know, with the photographs of Tokelau, it sort of really brought home how um, vulnerable they are to yes. a sea level rise or even just, you know, just the weather in general. I think there was a thing that most places, the homes were like only three metres above sea level, that, or above, you no know, tide level, high yes, tide. Yes, that's
1: right. Mm. Yeah, no, they're very vulnerable and... Uh, They've shown, I think the rest of the world. There's only the population's just on 1,200, I think, at the moment, pretty well split up, 400 on each a- uh, each of the atolls, mm-hmm. three atolls, and um, yeah, they've they've had big wind, uh, solar power, the panels, uh, capturing uh, energy from the sun, of course, and um, now claim to be the the world's first small nation to. To uh, go completely uh, with renewable energy, mm. and uh, although they still have a backup with diesel uh, power generators and, and so on for, for electricity if they need it, um, so it's quite exciting times for Tokelau. Uh, they are pretty much self-governing, but they do require you know several million dollars a year from the New Zealand. A Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, to keep themselves afloat with things like the, the transport services, the, the ship, and so on.
0: Uh, one of the interesting things um, about this, we well, you know we reading about the inhabited islands, Tokelau, but also um, looking again back down to um, Stewart Island. Mm. Um, and Chatham Islands is, in the populated islands how the local community has really gathered around and supported the conservation efforts. I was interested yes. in reading about the um, you know, with the the kiwi and you know the local dogs being um, trained to not hassle the kiwi and how the locals brought into that. How did you find those communities?
1: Well, uh, they, yeah, the Stewart Island ones are certainly leading, I think, New Zealand's efforts to become predator-free by 2050. Um, and they have a head start because they don't have um, any of the mustelid family, the ferret, stoat and weasels.
0: That amazed me. I didn't realise yeah. that they never had them introduced.
1: No, they don't, and they don't want them. <laughs> They don't certainly want them. don't want them. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they've still got possums and, and rats and cats wild, going wild. Uh, yeah, yeah, but they've they've got a very intensive trapping program around the village areas, the residential areas on the island, and and they um, they've got to a point now where you can see kiwi walking around at night uh, reasonably commonly coming into people's back gardens, you know, and and uh, walking across or across the roads. And so, yeah, they're making a, a good fist of it, I think. And and it's and as you said, it's an example of how a, com- a community could sort of pull together and and um, try to make it a better place for their their natural wildlife to live.
0: Mm-hmm. And some of the really interesting stories were around some of those conservation efforts. Um, were talking about the Chatham Islands and the Chatham Island robin, that was a really fascinating mm. story of how. It came back from the very brink of the brink of extinction.
1: It yeah, certainly did, yes. Yeah, the black robin was a, a world-leading example of how one, sing, one pair, old blue and old yellow, uh, could actually um, you know, recreate their, their species. They were uh, you know, knocking on death's doorstep of extinction, really. And uh, there they, they pulled back, now and now the, the, the population's probably in the area of about 300 now. You Which might, isn't
0: any point you can relax yet. No,
1: no, that's true, <laughs> and of course, uh, a lot of the early um, biologists working with, with that program were worried about a, a genetic uh, a ba- uh, a roadblock for them, but uh, it just seems like they've they've managed to. To kind of maintain a gen- genetic diversity, so that they're not mutating into different sort of things, mm. and uh, the the, the, the future is looking quite bright for them.
0: Yes, that was that was um, amazing story of redemption, <laughs> for want of a better word. And the other one, of course, which is um, always really interesting, is the kakapo. Um, yes, and. You, you know, you talk of Anchor Island, but also of um, you know, Resolution Island and the Dusky Sound, because I remember reading about Richard Henry, mm. um, the conservator, New Zealand's yes. first conservation officer. <laughs>
1: yes, that's right. You know, his story is just is wonderful, and you can go and visit the place where he, he was si- assigned to, Dusky Sound, as you said. Mm. And um, there's, there's no housing left there now, but there is the pen that he kept um, as kind of a cage with. Um, uh, he made out of uh, ponga stems uh, that he could keep kakapo and takahi and other flightless birds Uh, he could keep them there while he was working out where he was going to take them to, to uh, resolution as you suggested Uh, many of them went there, off the main island, south island of course and uh, yeah, he, uh, he was a and a terrific example of um of how new zealand's where new zealand's gone to now, which is one of the world's great sort of wildlife um, protection kind of regimes that we have here
0: mm-hmm. So now that you're you know, slightly more advanced in years, <laughs> <laughs> Certainly am. Would uh, potentially, you know, I don't know if we could call you retired, but do you still mm. find yourself being um, given opportunities to continue on your work, um, like traveling, going to islands or in your conservation fields?
1: Yeah, I probably could, but I'm slowing down, as you've indicated, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm quite happy to be in that, that position, and, and this book might, you know, could it, would it be my last one? I, it's, You never say never, but um, I I have an idea of just going towards sh- shorter works, short essays, if you like, or um, articles for papers and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm pretty well geared up to do that kind of work as well, so... Yeah, it's been quite an innings, and I'm happy to let you know a new generation of writers um, come through and do something similar because I think we've got the potential here. And thanks to um, people like yourself who promote kind of the the, the writing industry in, in in New Zealand, you know, uh, we I, I'm sure we're going to continue to have some really talented people writing about nature.
0: And what advice would you you know give to um people out there who are you know, at the beginning of a career or finding an interest in wanting to write about natural history and you know, non-fiction works. What would be a key piece of advice that you'd give to them? Just to pop you um, on the spot.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, there, I think New Zealand's Zealand had a, had a, has a wonderful kind of industry of, of book publishing. Well, that's, that's the ultimate, isn't it, for most writers. Um, and I've oh, been glad to be kind of part of that and seen it kind of come and become flourishing with different kind of genres. Children's uh, obviously stands out very mm. much. So, and even your own field and crime, crime writing, uh, is developed enormously. You know, since uh, 1977, which is when my first book came out, um, mm. and. Uh, I think you know there are a lot of opportun- even more opportunities now that we've gone to into a digital world, and you can have your writing, you can have your words kind of spread far and wide in an instant. Really, uh, I know for me anyway, the printed word is still the 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 ideal to to aim for. Something about uh, like
0: turning a page. <laughs> yeah,
1: and the smell of the paper and the. And the look of everything, there's a um, tactile kind of feel to the to a book, isn't there? Uh, Mm. That that helps. Um, But yeah, I think I think New Zealand is still a a very productive place for for people who want to write uh, in a creative way, whatever.
0: Mm. Mm. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Neville, for coming on and talking about your book, Home as an Island, which I, you know, was a, a, a fascinating way to explore. Almost like a, a history of conservation uh, in many ways, and um, all the very best. Look forward to reading some of your shorter, more works now. Yeah,
1: thank you, Vanda.
0: We're going to take a short music break. We'll be back soon. Do, 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 do. I'm University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, ooh, look, have you read this, or have you seen that, and we know you need this, with its cruelly-situated right-at-the-front-so-you-trip-over-at-New-Zealand-New-Releases table, and worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in book lovers' Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Back in 2021, I had the great privilege of being asked to be part of a panel at the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. Um, The panel was called Women, Past and Present. What do they have to tell us about the future? And we were given pretty much free choice in who we were going to talk about. Uh, The other panellists that I had the pleasure of being on and listening to uh, were Steph Green, HG Parry, and Angela Wanhalla, and we were chaired very lovely by Magella um, Cullinane. So of course I had to choose Dame Nio Marsh, who is a very well-known New Zealand crime writer and um, a local, you know, from local-ish, I should say, from Christchurch up the road. So I thought today I was going to share with you the speech that I gave for this festival. Women past and present, what do they have to tell us about the future? Kia ora, haere I'm going to talk about one of New Zealand's most notorious criminal minds, a woman of such evil cunning and criminal ingenuity. She was world famous. In fact, she was so skilled at the art of murder that she was known as a queen of crime. I am, of course, referring to Dame Nio Marsh. I'm a New Zealand crime writer who proudly sets her novels in New Zealand and when asked to talk about women past and present, I couldn't look past the local girl. Picture, if you will, a striking, tall woman with a deep, sonorous, almost English-sounding voice, a woman who dominated the world literary scene in her day. And how could you look past her incredible achievements as a crime fiction writer? She wrote 32 Detective Chief Inspector Roderick Allen novels from 1934 to 1982. She was lauded as one of the four queens of crime of the golden era of detective fiction, sharing the accolade with Agatha Christie, Marjorie Allingham and Dorothy Sayers. She was awarded an OBE and then was made a dame in 1966, or damery as she used to call it. She was awarded the first Honorary Doctor of Literature from the University of Canterbury and she was awarded a Grand Master Award for Lifetime Achievement from the Mystery Writers of America. Her novels were adapted for television by, amongst others, the BBC. And all of you authors out there, imagine anything of this happening to you. Her publishers produced The Marsh Million, 100,000 copies of ten books pushed out into the market at once the kind of confidence and accolade any modern writer would kill for, and one only shared by Agatha Christie, H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw. She was and still is, arguably, one of New Zealand's most successful writers. Yet despite this, she was barely recognised for her crime writing here, where she was lauded only for her Shakespearean productions, and she doubted her worth. As she said in her autobiography, Black Beach and Honeydew, Intellectual New Zealand friends tactfully avoid all mention of my published work, and if they like me, do so I cannot help but feel, in spite of it. As a crime writer suffering similar self-doubt and the barbs of subtle and unsubtle feedback from some people that crime writing was somehow a second-class form of literature, I felt a solidarity with NIO. So much so that when it came to choosing a topic of research for my PhD, she was my first and obvious choice. I wanted to show how crime writing was an immensely valuable and important form of literature. My, I'll show you, attitude flared up, and I thought, what better way to do then than to take the incredible woman from our past and demonstrate how incredibly clever Niomarsh Marsh was. Or, as my mum would put it, I got my dander up. Another source of motivation was my sense of sadness that Naya Marsh seemed to have disappeared from New Zealand's collective conscious. My generation and the younger generations appeared to be unaware of this extraordinary New Zealander. I hoped my research would in some way throw the spotlight on her again. So how was Naya Marsh's influence so very, very important? She was a stickler for accuracy and heavily researched all aspects of crime for her novels. She didn't ever want to make a factual mistake in her works, especially as she had many friends who were in the medical, scientific and legal fields. So no, in her words, bloomers. And as the writers in the room will attest, that if you do make a boo-boo, the readers will let you know. She caught the expertise of those around her, quizzing her friends and colleagues about all things medical, scientific or criminal. I had the pleasure of going to Martin Cottage, her family home in the Kashmir Hills in Christchurch, and being able to have a thorough look at her library. If you have the opportunity, for heaven's sakes, go. Naomi Marsh House is essentially how she left it when she died, and you can imagine her there, happily ensconced, writing her novels, surrounded by her books, theatre memorabilia, and her beautiful gardens. Her library is fantastic, with books on everything from medical jurisprudence and police procedure, Scotland Yard to True Crime Criminal Cases, and Drug trafficking, She actually made references to titles in her library within her novels, her characters discussing the books, little easter eggs that made my nerdy heart sing. Her work was also incredibly nuanced and made a lot of social commentary on the day. It wasn't all light frippery and entertainment, oh no. It was exquisitely researched and observed commentary on the time. She fed into the public themes and paranoias of the day. For example, she discusses eugenics in her 1935 novel, Nursing Home Murder, in the lead-up to World War II. Naya Marsh was also very self-aware of the potential influence of her fiction, from copycat killing to her many references to the death penalty and consequences of murder. She poked fun at it, but I think it went deeper than that her expressing an anxiety that someone may use her ideas, created in the name of entertainment, for evil intent. I know as a writer it's something that drifts like a dark cloud at the back of my mind, and you have to remember that this was before the internet, where Twitter and Facebook can hold such sway now, back in her day it was the printed word that had the power, and authors carried far more influence than they do now. That being said, it certainly didn't stop Naya Marsh from coming up with some of the most original and interesting ways of dispatching her poor victims. She clearly had a lot of fun conjuring up some very original ways to knock people off. Imagine being dispatched by a swinging jeroboam of champagne, or meeting your maker by getting shot in the head after hitting a chord when playing Rachmaninoff's Prelude in C-sharp minor by the booby-trapped piano. Someone met their demise in a Rotorua mud pool. Another by transdermal poisoning by the delightfully named "sleepest. She was also renowned for her prose, which was elegant and witty and her sharp and often hilarious character descriptions. She was esteemed as a writer first and foremost, but she also liked to poke fun in her books at the genre of detective fiction. You can understand how her writing became a hot favorite with the public. So how does this relate to the present? Niamh set a bar in writing style and accuracy that extends through to this day. She was a trailblazer in so many ways, even to marrying her Detective Alan to the free-thinking, independent and successful-in-her-own-right artist, Agatha Troy. Today, her influence on the reading public is recognised through her name being given to our National Crime Writing Award, the Niomarsh Award for Best Crime Novel. She always felt that crime fiction was seen as the poorer cousin of literature, so I think she would have been mightily chuffed to see her name on the award. I think she would have been even more delighted to see that in New Zealand having a national award for crime fiction has given it a sense of legitimacy and value, and it's added to the profile and manner of the New Zealand crime writing on the international stage. When Naya Marsh Award was first started over 10 years ago, you could count the entries on two hands. Crime fiction writing in New Zealand has gone from strength to strength, so that in fact there have been 80 debut authors in recent years, as well as our established crime writers and well-known authors extending their range into the realm of crime fiction. Crime fiction is no longer the dodgy uncle of literature. In fact, two recent winners of the Naya Marsh Award for Crime Fiction had also been winners of the Jan Medlicott Acorn Prize for Fiction and the Ockham Book Awards. This Mortal Boy by Dame Fiona Kidman in 2019 and Way by Becky too in 2020. So what does the example of Naomi Marsh tell me about the future? Through the awards given her name, she has ensured the robust good health of New Zealand crime fiction into the future. The voices coming through in crime fiction are exciting and we are being recognised on the international stage. But on a personal level, She continues to inspire this crime writer into the future. So what lessons have I learned from her incredible example? Firstly, story is vital. Just enjoy telling the story. Secondly, be accurate. She loved her research. She loved her science. Let it enrich your work. Thirdly, Crime fiction is important literature. It can reflect and discuss society and its issues in a way that other genres can't. Embrace that. Fourthly, if you're not having fun, then why are you doing this? And finally, keep writing. Just keep on flaming writing. Naya Marsh was still writing novels until she died aged 82. I have a vision of future me in my 80s, gin in hand, probably dictating into some brilliant piece of software, and enjoying the nefarious thrill of committing crime. That is our show for this month. Thank you for listening in, and thank you to my guest, Neville Pitt, who is talking about his book, Home is an Island. Join us again next month when we get to delve into the wonderful world of books. Until then, enjoy lots of great summer reading.